0: where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mystery airships of the 1890s. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. At the end of the year 1896, residents of California were startled to see an unknown airship appearing in their skies. This was before the Wright brothers conducted their first powered flight in 1903, and Although balloons had been used for years, these new airships displayed unusual flight characteristics that were beyond other craft in their day. In recent years, many have proposed that the wave of the 1890s airships were early UFO sightings that heralded contact with extraterrestrials. But others have said that it was all a giant hoax. But what's the truth about the 1890s airship mystery? Was it aliens? Was it a hoax? Or was it something else? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin?
1: Today's episode is the first part of a two parter. Today, we'll be discussing the origins of the 1890s airship mystery and we'll go a good way towards solving it. We'll be looking at many of the theories regarding them and we'll be able to eliminate most of the theories as good general explanations of the reports. But not all. So next week, we'll go back to the very beginning of the mystery, looking at the earliest reports and seeing whether we can solve it completely. Now, why did you want to do this mystery? As with every episode, because I think it's a fascinating mystery, but also because it's been regarded in the UFO community as evidence of contact with extraterrestrials before the famous Kenneth Arnold sighting that launched the modern UFO phenomenon in 1947. We discussed the Kenneth Arnold sighting back in episode 46, so you can go back and listen to that to hear all about how the modern era of UFOs started. And we'll be looking at whether the mystery airships of the 1890s are good evidence for extraterrestrial contact or not. Even if they're not, the story of the mystery airships is fascinating in and of itself. Even if it turns out that they weren't extraterrestrial, what were they? Who built them? And why did the reported sightings stop so suddenly?
0: Then let's begin. How much information do we have?
1: We actually have a lot of information. Uh, I did a search on newspapers.com, and in 1896 and 1897, it lists 29,000 occurrences of the word airship, and almost all of those are from 1897, which had 24,000 occurrences of the word This dwarfs the use of the term in the rest of the decade. If you look at a graph of the use of the word airship in newspapers across the 1890s, you'll see that there is a huge spike in 1897 with almost nothing by comparison in other years. Now, those 29,000 word usages don't translate directly into the number of stories published because the word airship will appear multiple times in the same story, but I've seen researchers in the mystery airships state that they found over 1,200 or over 1,500 individual stories reporting on the airships in 1896 and 1897, though their research was done several years ago before newspapers.com and other online sources had many newspapers digitized like they do today. So I suspect that 1,200 to 1,500 number is low but this was a major news story of the day. How did the airship story unfold? It happened in two phases, between November of 1896 and May of 1897, so a seven-month period. Phase one began in California and lasted for about four to seven weeks, depending on which stories you count. The first sighting was reported in the state capital, Sacramento, on Tuesday, November 17th, 1896. Then, five days later, on November 22nd, the airship appeared again over Sacramento and nearby San Francisco. Soon, airship sightings were being reported all up and down the west coast, from San Diego in the south to Seattle, Washington in the north. And then, all of a sudden, the report seemed to stop. By mid-December, just a month after they had started, the stories of airship sightings petered out, though I have found one sighting that was reported on Christmas Eve. And then, there was just nothing in January. The airship scene had basically gone dark, but it sprang to life again when Phase 2 began. On Tuesday, February 2nd, 1897, an airship was sighted in Hastings, Nebraska, a completely different part of the country. Now, a new and much longer series of airship sightings happened, lasting from February to May. And unlike the sightings in Phase 1, they weren't based on the West Coast. Instead, they were in the middle of the nation with reports from as far south as Texas and as far north as the Dakotas. And the reports shifted eastward over time as if the airships were zigzagging their way towards the east coast. But then by early May, after a period covering just three months, they petered out again. And by the end of the summer, the mystery airship flap was definitely over.
0: You just use the term flap what does that mean in this context? It's
1: a borrowing from UFO literature. In, U- in ufology, a flap is a period in which UFOs are frequently seen, often in the same area, but always more frequently than they are normally seen. UFO flaps are also called UFO waves, and it's an appropriate term to use here, since the mystery airships were, by definition, unidentified flying objects. So it looks like we had two brief flaps or waves of airship sightings. The first took place on the West Coast between mid-November and mid-December 1896, and the second took place in the middle of the country between February and early May of 1897.
0: What did people say they saw when they witnessed a mystery airship?
1: Well, it varied. Uh, People didn't always give the same kind of description. Uh, To some extent, that's expected because people notice and remember different details of things, and they perceive things differently. So a certain amount of variation is to be expected. Also, as we'll hear, some of the airship reports were likely hoaxes, and so you'd expect the hoaxed ones that weren't based on real perceptions to vary even more considerably. But here's a summary of the kind of thing that most people reported seeing. In his book, The Great Airship of 1897, Alan Danilek writes about what people reported when the airship first appeared over Sacramento.
0: Some who happened to be outside when the thing appeared and managed to get a close look at it, described it as being an intensely bright light that seemed to be suspended just beneath some sort of large dark mass. Most described this shape as being cigar-like, with a few even reporting that the thing sported oversized propellers and had huge rudders on its undercarriage. One man even went on record as claiming it had paddle wheels on its sides like Fulton's Great Riverboat, while another described seeing its human occupants feverishly working bicycle pedals as it passed overhead, as though the great craft was capable of being pushed through the air by brute strength alone but despite the often fantastic descriptions of the ship offered, everyone could agree about one thing. The thing had a brilliant white light that cut through the cool, damp air, illuminating its path like a powerful searchlight. One witness, who reportedly watched the ship through a small telescope as it made its way slowly over the city, claimed it was an electric arc light of intense power, making it sound like something far more mechanical than ethereal in nature. So
1: the basic description of the airship was that it had a large cigar-like mass on top. Beneath that was some kind of undercarriage, and attached to the undercarriage was a powerful searchlight. People also reported it having propellers and rudders, and some claimed to be able to see crewmen working aboard it.
0: This sounds very much like a dirigible or directable balloon, like the ones we discussed in episode 189 on the Hindenburg disaster.
1: Yes, and contrary to the extraterrestrial hypothesis that is common today, that's exactly what most witnesses understood the airship to be, a new kind of dirigible that some human had invented and that made improvements on the dirigibles that were already being used at the time. Now, the previous example is a summary by a modern author, but to give you an idea of what actual airship reports were like, we're going to look at a few examples. Today, we'll be focusing on phase two of the appearances rather than phase one. So here's our first example, which is an article that appeared in the Plainview News from Plainview, Nebraska. It ran on Friday, February 26,
0: 1897. Think it in airship. For three or four days the past week, there has been more or less speculation and interest at Kearney, Nebraska, and a mysterious light seen in the west between 7 and 10 o'clock in the evening. It has appeared in the west and seems to grow from a small faint light to a large bright one and then diminish again. On two occasions it has remained apparently stationary for an hour or so and then would take an undulating motion and disappear to the north. Some think it an airship and others who are more superstitious think it a sign of some dire disaster. The light has been seen by some reliable and responsible persons of that city, A satisfactory explanation of it would be gladly received by many as they are getting considerably worked up over it. And that's it. Just a very simple account. On three or four evenings,
1: a light in the sky appeared in the west of Kearney, Nebraska. As it traveled, it became big and then shrank again. On two occasions, it stood still for around an hour. Then it would undulate up and down before beginning to move again and go off to the north. Various responsible people had seen it. Uh, Some thought it was an airship, while some thought it was an omen of disaster. This is a very straightforward, sober account. It's not long on fantastic details, and it doesn't sound like a hoax. Now, here's our second example. It's from my first home state of Texas, and it was published in the Dallas Morning News on Saturday, April 17th.
0: Flight of the airship seen near Hillsborough. A lawyer had a good view and gives a graphic description. Hillsboro, hill county texas april 16 last evening april 15 honorable j spence bounds of this city was called out into the southwestern section of the country near osceola to write the will of william h Gathings, an old settler who is quite sick and is not expected to recover it was dusk when mr bounds got there and as the will was lengthy with complications in it it was nearly nine o'clock when he got through and started home What occurred on his homeward drive is best related in his own language to the news reporter in the presence of Judge J.M. Hall of the 18th Judicial District and Honorable W.E. Spell, attorney for the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railway. Said Mr. Bounds, I want to relate a little thing that I witnessed last night. I'd been up to old Uncle Billy Gathings to write his will and was driving homeward thinking of the old man and his useful career, and the reward that doubtless awaited him in the good thereafter, when I was astonished by a brilliant flash from an electric searchlight which passed directly over my buggy. I want to tell you also that I was almost frightened to death by it, for it made the space around me as light as day. My horse was also frightened and came near overturning the buggy. He snorted, reared, and plunged madly, trembling meantime like a leaf. My hair stood straight up, and I was almost too exercised to pay attention to the horse. Fortunately, the light rested on us scarcely a second, but glided along over the fields and the country till it was suddenly turned upward to the heavens. Then following it with my eyes, I beheld about one thousand feet above me, I judge, a huge black monster from which the light emanated. It was in shape something like a cigar, but underneath there appeared to be a body similar to the body of a ship, which was attached to the object and from which the light originated. The searchlight was presently shut off and a number of incandescent lights flashed around the lower edge of the body of the vessel, or whatever it was. When I first saw it, was going very slowly in a southerly direction. The lights were soon entirely extinguished and it glided along like a small black cloud in the air. When some miles further south, the searchlight again appeared and guided along the timbers of Aquila Creek and rested on a hill about three miles this side of the town of Aquila. The vessel or ship steered for the hill, and as it approached it all the lights were again extinguished, and the ship disappeared from my sight. I think it must have stopped on the hill. I never had anything to so thoroughly work me up, and I resumed my journey home, considering in my mind the strange adventure of the night. I have read and heard so much of the airships, but I never expected to see one. I had never seriously thought of them as possible but in a few minutes I recalled the many stories I've recently seen in the papers about airships and decided that what I had seen was an airship. When I was within a mile of Hillsborough about an hour later, I saw the same object rise from the locality where it disappeared. It ascended till it looked like a mere dark cloud in the skies when it started in a northeasterly direction and went at a terrific rate of speed. It must have gone at the rate of a 100 miles an hour or more. It was headed as near as I can judge toward Dallas or near there. Every few seconds it would send out brilliant flashes and sparkles, but it traveled most of the time in darkness. Now, gentlemen, I am not prepared by my profession to believe everything I see and hear, but I saw that object, and my horse saw it. It almost made both of us frantic, so there is no denying the fact of its existence. The question is, what is it? Man has conquered the ocean, but we are told that the devil is the prince of the air. Again, the scriptures say the devil shall be turned loose for a season. Who knows but what the scripture is being fulfilled right before our very eye. It is possible, I admit, for man to get up a flying machine, but still, for all that I have seen, I feel curious as to what it was and can't help it. Judge Hall and Mr. Spell were much interested in the narrative. The former Judge Hall, commenting on it, said, There is no end to the invention of man, and I place fully as much confidence in what my friend Bounds saw As the accounts I read in the newspapers about airships every day. Yes, added Mr. Spell, when Bounds is on the opposite side of a case that I am, I think he is the most imaginative man in Texas. But when he descends from the bar and says, on his honor as a gentleman, that a thing is so, I deal very gently with him and always give him the benefit of the doubt. This account has the advantage of naming several individuals,
1: including the witness of the event, attorney J. Spence Bounds. Other researchers have checked to see whether people mentioned in newspaper airship stories can be verified as real individuals, and I decided to check on these individuals myself, and so this is what I can report. After a little online searching, I found a record of J.S. Bounds. I verified that he was an attorney serving in Texas just over a decade later, as illustrated by a court case I found from 1909. I also found a record of the first man who vouched for him in the story, Judge J.M. Hall. He did exist and was a judge in Hillsboro in the 1890s. This is very significant because if the story didn't happen, then the Dallas Morning News was opening itself up to a lawsuit from Judge Hall, who could have made life very unpleasant for the newspaper's owner and editor if they were making this stuff up. I also found a record of the other attorney they mentioned, W.E. Spell. He also existed, and he was an attorney in Hillsborough in the 1890s. So all three figures, J.S. Bounds, Judge J.M. Hall, and W.E. Spell, were real people. And if you were a newspaper at the time and you want to stay in business, you don't print false stories in which you say flagrantly false things about attorneys and judges. They're the very people who know exactly how to sue you and demolish you in court. So this story appears quite genuine. It was not made up Uh, by the paper. uh, J.S. Bounds really did tell the reporter these things in the presence of Judge Hall and W.E. Spell, who then told the paper that they believed him. And here's another account which was printed in the San Antonio Express also on Saturday, April 17th.
0: The Airship It passes over Dallas and is seen by several Preacher's Theories. Dallas, Texas, April 16th, Special It may have been an optical illusion, but Dallas tonight is wavering between science and revelation's elations over the airship. It passed north of this city tonight, April 16th, at 8 o'clock going east to west and was witnessed by hundreds, including such men as Judge A.T. Watts, formerly of the High Court, and Dr. R.C. Kopish. Who describe it as being only about three hundred feet from the ground and in appearance similar to the airship seen in different parts of the country. Preachers say it is from the other world and is the advent courier of the second coming of Christ. They say if it was an earthly device, it would be seen by day as well as night.
1: This isn't a very good argument for two reasons. Uh, First, earthly devices can also be seen at night, and second the airship was seen during the daytime. But the San Antonio Express reported that the airship was seen by hundreds of people in Dallas, which is not an inconsiderable number. It also mentions two individuals by name, Judge A.T. Watts and Dr. R.C. Kopish. I checked, and Judge A.T. Watts was real. The Dallas Daily Herald reported that he moved to Dallas 10 years earlier in 1887. Dr. Kopish also was a real individual. He was a pharmacist in Dallas, and I found multiple online confirmations of him, including an advertisement for his pharmacy in the Southern Pharmaceutical Journal 15 years later in 1912. So this is another real story, not just one made up by a paper. Now, there were many stories like this where people on the ground simply saw the airship in the sky and reported what they saw. But what goes up? must come down. So, if the airship was real, it would have to land, and there are multiple accounts of people coming across it while it was on the ground, and that gave people a chance to talk to the crew. As in this story, which ran on Sunday, April 18th, in the Fort Worth Register, and incidentally. April 18th was Easter Sunday, so it wasn't the most auspicious day for planting fake stories in your newspaper.
0: Oft seen airship, seen at a point west on the Texas and Pacific. Captain Pat C. Burns, telegraph line repairer, examined the machine and talked with its manager and crew. Bound for Cuba to deal death to the Spaniards. A description. Mr. Patrick C. Burns, a repairer in the telegraph department of the Texas and Pacific, between Fort Worth and Baird, came in from the West last evening and to a register reporter told a story which a great many will doubt, and were it not for his reputation as a truthful man, the register would hardly care to repeat it. Mr. Burns has been employed on the Texas and Pacific for the past 20 years and has always been a truthful and an honest employee. As he told the story Thursday afternoon and evening, April 15, he was engaged in making some repairs near Putnam Station which occupied his time till it became dark on account of the clouds obscuring the moon. He was unable to proceed with his work when he turned his attention to supper and a place to sleep. He started towards Cisco and as Velocipede. Velocipede is an old term for a wheeled vehicle
1: that you power by pedaling it. Uh, Velocipedes had one or more wheels, and so they included unicycles, bicycles, tricycles, quadricycles, and others. But the most common kind are bicycles so you can imagine Mr. Burns
0: riding a bicycle, going to find dinner, and a place to sleep. And when near Delmar Siding, about seven miles west of Cisco, he saw a light some little distance from the track on the south side. Knowing full well there was no farmhouse in the neighborhood, his curiosity was aroused, and dismounting from his velocipede, he proceeded to investigate. Imagine, if you will, his surprise when he found that he had stumbled onto the airship, which has attracted so much attention and been the occasion of a great deal of speculation of late as to what it really was. A number of men were moving about the ship or machine, and seemed considerably surprised when Mr. Burns appeared. Nevertheless, they were nothing loath to talk when he had explained how he came to be there. Something had gone wrong with the searchlight of the ship, and not daring to proceed in darkness, the ship had been brought to the ground. It is cigar-shaped, about 200 feet long and 50 feet across at the widest point, Gradually narrowing to a point at both ends. Mr. Burns was allowed to examine as much as he pleased, and all his questions were answered. At each end of the ship is a large steel snail-shell device. This, he was informed, was the apparatus by which the strange machine was propelled. Large gasoline engines caused whichever of these are in use to revolve rapidly and to bore into the air, dragging or pulling the ship along at a wonderful rate of speed. Two more of these devices are attached to each side and near the ends of the ship, and are used for steering. When it is desired to turn the ship to the right or the left, the propeller on that side is set in motion. To raise the machine, a like apparatus on top is set in motion. The craft is loaded with several tons of dynamite, and is bound for Cuba. The captain said the Spanish troops are being massed in the cities for transportation to the Philippine Islands, and it is to proceed to sail over to these cities and drop dynamite into the camps of the soldiers and on the transportation ships. It is proposed to destroy the Spanish Navy. This will enable filibustering ships to land arms and ammunition for the Cuban soldiers, who thus supplied can easily dispose of such of the Spaniards as escape the dynamite dropped by the airships. About one o'clock Friday morning, the searchlight was in good shape, and the ships started for the wilds of the Ozark Mountains, where, the captain informed Mr. Burns, they spend the days experimenting at night with the ship. They expected to sail or fly for Cuba by Sunday and hoped to reach there by Wednesday. When they do, Spain is likely to hear something drop. Now, I was not
1: able to independently verify Mr. Burns' existence, which is not surprising since he was just a telegraph repair man, not a prominent person like an attorney or judge. In episode 151 on Operation Northwoods, We discussed the role of America in the Cuban War of Independence, which lasted from 1895 to 1898. You'll recall that newspapers owned by William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer helped get America into the war after the American warship, the USS Maine, blew up in Havana Harbor. They called for blood, and the U.S. became involved in what's now known as the Spanish American War. All that would happen the next year in 1898 but people were already starting to talk about getting involved in 1897 when this conversation was reported to happen the airship workers said they were going to drop dynamite on the spanish navy in cuba after which filibustering ships could land to arm cuban soldiers and we talked about military filibusters and what they involve in episode 255 on the nights the golden circle this was not the only time that the airships were linked to Cuba, and many people speculated that they might become involved in the Cuban conflict. However, we need to sound sound a word of caution, because if the airships were real, then they were operating somewhat secretively. And that's understandable, because if you're testing out your new invention, you don't want people knowing too much about it. In the 1890s, there were loads of inventors trying to come up with new, improved flying machines. According to an article printed in the Dallas Times-Herald on Monday, April
0: 19th, There is hardly a town of any importance in America, but has one or more men who have at one time or another attempted to construct a flying machine. In Dallas alone, it is said that work is progressing on four flying machines. So if you're testing your new experimental airship, it would
1: be natural to be somewhat secretive. After all, you don't want anyone else stealing your design, especially if you haven't yet secured a patent on it with the U.S. Patent Office. As a result, we should be careful about things that the airship crew are alleged to have said. They could have been telling stories as part of a misdirection strategy. But we shouldn't simply dismiss everything they said either, especially if we can get confirmation from other sources. Another story was related by a clergyman, a rabbi from Beaumont, Texas. On Sunday, April 25th, the New Orleans Daily
0: Picayune reported, The airship. A Texas rabbi says he has seen it and describes the wonder. There is a man in New Orleans who has seen the airship and conversed with one of the occupants. He is Rabbi A. Levy of Beaumont, Texas, and his clerical position entitles him to credence. Dr. Levy was seen by a Picayune man last night at the residence of Mrs. G. Levy, number 48 St. Peter Street, where he is stopping, having come to the city to attend the wedding of Mrs. Levy's daughter this afternoon, the young lady being his niece. You can take my word for it, said he, that the airship is no myth. I had heard a good deal about it, but placed little reliance in the stories that were circulated and doubted until the moment I saw it. It was about ten days ago, April 15, or perhaps April 17, on a farm about two miles from Beaumont, which is my home. About ten o'clock that night, the whole country around was aroused by the report that the airship had been seen and that it had alighted on a farm nearby. My curiosity was aroused and I went to see it. I learned that they had stopped to lay in a fresh supply of water. It was dark as pitch then, and I could see very little except the outlines of the ship. It was about 150 feet long, the body being shaped something like the hustles used in an ordinary sewing machine. On either side were immense wings about a 100 feet long. It seemed to be made of some light material, what I could not say. I spoke to one of the men when he went into the farmer's house and shook hands with him. It is run by electricity, but how it is supplied, I do not know. Yes, I did hear him say where it was built, but I can't remember the name of the place or the name of the inventor. He said that they'd been traveling a great deal and were testing the machine. I was so dumbfounded that I could not frame an intelligent question to ask, so you see I can give you but very meager details. One thing I do know, and that is that an airship is an accomplished fact, for I have seen it, and many of my friends have seen it flying in the air. It went to Dallas, Austin, Fort Worth, and hovered all around Texas for some time. Now, another newspaper,
1: the Galveston Daily News, would also run stories about nearby Beaumont, Texas. And in it, I found an 1896 column about Beaumont that confirmed that Rabbi A. Levy was a real man who served at Congregation Emmanuel in Beaumont. So, unlike the case of Patrick Burns, I was able to verify the existence of Rabbi Levy. And so here we have a clergyman testifying that he met and spoke with the crew of the airship. And he's a clergyman from a minority religion. And there was a good bit of anti-Semitism in American culture at the time. So, I'd think he'd be less inclined to lie about something like this, since it could stir up opposition from anti-Semites. And now, here's another encounter with an airship crew, which is from my second home state of Arkansas. It was printed in the Friday, May 14th edition of the Arkadelphia,
0: Arkansas Southern Standard. Swear they saw it. Two reputable citizens of Hot Springs maintain that they saw the airship. The airship story, which Constable John J. Sumter and Deputy Sheriff John McLemore Related to a hot spring sentinel reporter the other night on their return from a midnight trip beyond Sugarloaf Mountain, subjected them to the jokes and jibes of their friends. They, however, most seriously maintain that it is absolutely true, and their earnestness is puzzling many who, while unable to accept the story as a fact, yet see that the men are not jesting. In order to convince their friends of their sincerity, at least, Constable Sumter wrote out the following statement detailing their discovery. To which he and Mr. McLemore made affidavit. While riding northwest from this city on the night of May 6, 1897, we noticed a brilliant light high in the heavens. Suddenly it disappeared, and we said nothing about it, as we were looking for parties and did not want to make any noise. After riding four or five miles around through the hills, we saw again the light, which now appeared to be much nearer the earth. We stopped our horses and watched it coming down, until all at once, it disappeared behind another hill. We rode on about another half a mile further, when our horses refused to go further. About a hundred yards distant, we saw persons moving around with lights. Drawing our Winchesters, for we were now thoroughly aroused to the importance of the situation, we demanded, Who is that, and what are you doing? A man with a long dark beard came forth with a lantern in his hand, and on being informed who we were, proceeded to tell us that he and the others... A young man and a woman were traveling through the country in an airship. We could plainly distinguish the outlines of the vessel, which was cigar-shaped and about 60 feet long, and looking just like the cuts that have appeared in the papers recently. It was dark and raining, and the young man was filling a big sack with water about 30 yards away, and the woman was particular to keep back in the dark. She was holding an umbrella over her head. The man with the whiskers invited us to take a ride, saying that he could take us where it was not raining we told him we believed we preferred to get wet. Asking the man why the brilliant light was turned on and off so much, he replied that the light was so powerful that it consumed a great deal of his motive power, that when the light was turned off, it was to catch up with his power. He said he would like to stop off in hot springs a few days and take the hot bath, but his time is limited and he could not. He said they were going to wind up at Nashville, Tennessee after thoroughly seeing the country. Being in a hurry, we left, and upon our return, about forty minutes later, nothing was to be seen. We did not hear or see the airship when it departed. John J. Sumter, Jr., John McLemore, subscribed and sworn to before me this eighth day of May, 1897, C. G. Bush, J.P., that is, Justice of the Peace. Speaking of this report, the Pine Bluff Press Eagle says, There has long been a demand for a better quality of jug juice at Hot Springs, and when these officials recover, they will doubtless use their influence to see that this long-felt want is supplied. I, I love how the guy with the long dark beard
1: offered to take the two men to where it wasn't raining, but they said they believed they'd prefer to get wet. Now, the Pine Bluff Eagle newspaper snarkily chalked this encounter up to drinking too much jug juice, meaning alcohol. But the Southern Standard newspaper, from which we just heard, reprinted an apparent sworn statement. The statement was signed by Constable John J. Sumter Jr. and Deputy Sheriff John McLemore, and it was sworn in front of C.G. Bush, who was a justice of the peace. I checked, and Constable John J. Sumter was a real person in Hot Springs in 1897. He had a famous father, John J. Sumter Sr. Uh, His father had been a a colonel in the Confederate Army, After the war, he became a prominent attorney in Hot Springs. He served in the Arkansas House of Representatives and the Arkansas Senate, so he was quite a prominent individual. His son, John Jr., is mentioned in numerous newspapers of the period in Arkansas and surrounding states. I found a sporting column in a Missouri newspaper from 1897 that included a line drawing of him. And it's a good thing for the man with the black beard that Sumter didn't feel the need to open fire with his Winchester because the Missouri paper was commenting on John Jr. winning a trap shooting competition, so he was quite a marksman. I also found a notice that he had indeed been appointed constable of Hot Springs Township a few months earlier. The notice appeared on December 16th, 1896,
0: and it read, John J. Sumter Jr appointed constable of Hot Springs Township, Garland County. The governor yesterday appointed John J. Sumter Jr. as constable of Hot Springs Township, Garland County. Vice Allen P. Dale deceased. The position was one for which there were many applicants, and Mr. Sumter, who has many friends in Pine Bluff, is to be congratulated on his good fortune. So Constable John J. Sumter Jr. was a real
1: person. I also verified that C.G. Bush also existed, and he was a justice of the peace. I found him mentioned in a congressional document listing the legal heirs of a man named Don Juan Filial, who had land in Hot Springs, and the listing of heirs indicates that Bush was a justice of the peace, so he was real too. And I found a Mclemore family in Hot Springs, and I know that it included at at least one member named John Mclemore. Though I didn't search long enough to verify that that member of the family was also a deputy sheriff, as I had already verified two of the three figures in the story. So I got definite confirmation that the two most important figures, the constable and the justice of the peace, were real, and it looks like the deputy sheriff was real also. So what the Southern Standard printed. Appears to be a genuine sworn statement, meaning it constitutes legal testimony regarding this airship encounter. And this was no small matter. In his book, Solving the 1897 Airship Mystery, author Michael Busby writes,
0: And now come deponents and make affidavit, was pretty much the ultimate and attempted to convince someone you were telling the truth. Making affidavits in the glorious age of steam engines was no small matter. Affidavits were taken very seriously, and anyone's falsely swearing to an affidavit was punished severely by the judicial system. Yet, with a threat of confinement in prison for falsely swearing, people were willing to legally swear that they saw this mysterious flying machine. Including the
1: two law enforcement officers of our previous account, so the airship stories should be taken seriously.
0: And before we get to our theories, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including William S., Father Joseph S., Kevin R., Suzanne L., and Michael S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com/give. Jimmy Yakins' Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at com And by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties and compliance with US customs matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com. Jimmy, what theories are there about the airships? There are two basic theories that we need to consider.
1: First, that people were not actually seeing any kind of airships in the sky in 1896 and 1897. For example, maybe they saw ordinary things in the sky and misidentified them as airships. This then led to a kind of mass hysteria or Popular delusion that took off in the newspapers. Or maybe the whole thing was a hoax. The hoax could have been started by ordinary pranksters who reported seeing airships, or it could have been started by railroad workers, since many airship sightings followed the railroads. Or it could have been started by newspaper men who created it to sell papers. The second theory we need to consider is that people really were seeing airships of some kind in the skies. In this case, the question is, what was the nature of these airships? And they may have been either exotic or conventional. If they were exotic, then they could have been extraterrestrial, either from another dimension or from another planet in our universe. Or they could have been crypto-terrestrial from a hidden people living on Earth. However, the airships also could have had a conventional human origin. In this case, they would have one or more human inventors, and they possibly could have even been part of a secret government project of some kind.
0: So what can we say about the airships from the reason perspective? Before we look at individual theories, are there any general arguments that would support the idea that people were not seeing any kind of airships in the sky?
1: One argument is that this took place before the Wright brothers made the first powered flight. Uh, That took place six years later in 1903 at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And at first glance, this could seem like a plausible argument. The Wright brothers hadn't flown yet, so there shouldn't be airships in the sky. Except that there were airships in the sky before the Wright brothers. As we discussed in episode 189 on the Hindenburg disaster, the Jesuit priest Father Francesco Lana de Tertzi published a design for an airship back in 1670, and the first balloon carried a human aloft in 1709. It was demonstrated by the Brazilian Portuguese priest Father Bartolomeu de Guzmau, for King John V of Portugal. In 1783, the French Montgolfier brothers flew a large hot air balloon for King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette. In 1851, the French engineer Henri Giffard uh, designed the Giffard dirigible, a dirigible being a directable balloon that you could steer using a rudder and a propeller. And in 1864, during the American Civil War, inventor Solomon Andrews demonstrated a hydrogen filled dirigible for the Smithsonian Institution, and he offered the plans to President Abraham Lincoln for use in the war effort. But since the Civil War was winding down at this point, the government didn't take him up on the offer. So we already had airships, including dirigibles, flying around in the sky as early as 1851, 45 years or almost half a century before the airships started being seen in 1896. They just looked like a new, more advanced kind of dirigible
0: is there a way to modify this argument to still argue that nobody was really seeing airships in 1896 and 1897? For example, could you argue that the airships that were reported at that time displayed flight characteristics that nobody could have achieved at the time, making them impossible? The only flight characteristic that you could make a serious case
1: was impossible at the time was the speed at which the 1890s airships were estimated to travel. According to some reports, they could fly between 100 and 200 miles per hour. But the problem is that we have a huge number of reports and we can't rely on them all being accurate. The estimates of 100 to 200 miles could be from accounts that were hoaxed or exaggerated or that were just misestimated, since people on the ground didn't have a good way of estimating speed any more than we do when we see an aircraft pass overhead. Furthermore, most of the accounts had them only moving 10 to 30 miles per hour, and that certainly would have been possible at the time. So the super-fast reports could just be mistaken accounts, and the bulk of the reports could have been accurate. On the other hand, back in 1863, when Solomon Andrews demonstrated his airship, he estimated that it did reach speeds of more than 200 miles per hour during part of his demonstration. So, maybe such speeds were possible in the 19th century. In any event, the modification of the argument doesn't show that nobody was seeing airships in the 1890s.
0: If we can't rule out the airships in principle... What about the various counterclaims? Could people have just identified ordinary things you'd see in the sky as airships? The question is what these things would be. Uh,
1: Proposals include meteors, fireballs, comets, and the planet Venus. And there was even a cultural event that could have started people misinterpreting these things. Ten years before the airship sightings in 1886, the famous French author Jules Verne published a novel. About airships. And like other works by Jules Verne, it was an early example of science fiction or scientific romance, as it was then called. The book was titled Robur the Conqueror. Uh, the story concerns a flying society that is building a new kind of advanced dirigible, and they're challenged by an inventor named Robur, who has conquered the problem of heavier than air flight and built a giant heavier-than-air craft that is far superior to their lighter-than-air dirigible. Robert the Conqueror was published in America in 1887, and Verne was a very popular author, so maybe a decade later, people reading it got excited about all this airship stuff and started misidentifying ordinary things as airships in the sky. And what do you make of this idea? The problem is that none of the proposed explanations are good ones. Uh, first, there's a general problem that applies to all of the astronomical phenomena, which is that back in the 1890s, before modern light pollution, people were much more familiar with the night sky than we are today. They knew all about meteors, fireballs, comets, and the planet Venus, or the evening star, as it was often called. So it's intrinsically unlikely that people back then would have been fooled by any of these things and into thinking they were airships. But then there are specific problems with each of the proposals. Meteors and fireballs stay in the sky for mere seconds, whereas the 1890s airships were observed for multiple minutes, uh, sometimes up to half an hour or an hour. So they couldn't be meteors or fireballs. Comets have the opposite problem. They stay in the sky for months, and that's way too long to explain the airship sightings. Further, we have astronomical records, and if you check, it doesn't appear that there were any comets visible to the naked eye during the right time period. When it comes to the planet Venus, it's one of the brightest objects in the sky, and it can appear to follow you if you're driving a car, but it doesn't cross the sky in 10 minutes to half an hour, just like, you know, comets don't and that's reportedly what the airships were seen to do. So none of the misidentification theories work, at least not as a general explanation. I can't rule out that some of the reports were caused by misidentifications like this, but they can't be a general explanation for the huge number of reports.
0: Should we even be seeking a single explanation for
1: all the reports? I don't think so. Uh just like With the modern UFO phenomenon, we shouldn't expect a single explanation for all of them. With modern UFOs, some are misidentifications, some are hoaxes, and some are other things. The question is what about the reports that remain when you eliminate those that can be explained in other ways? In the case of the 1890s airships, I have no problem saying that some of the reports can be explained in conventional uninteresting ways. In fact, I'm sure that some of them should be explained that way. But if there's a core of reports that remains when these types of explanations are taken into account,
0: then we need to consider more interesting possibilities. What about hoaxes? Could hoaxers or pranksters on the ground have started the craze and that it took off? Well, I'm absolutely certain that some of the 1890s airship reports were hoaxes.
1: Uh, Human nature alone guarantees that that would be the case. People do hoax things, and so I consider it certain that some of the reports were hoaxes. Some hoaxers may have been inspired by the Jules Verne novel, and other hoaxers might have been inspired by the airship accounts they read in the newspapers. In particular, I suspect the more fantastic out-there reports are hoaxes. Just like if today someone claimed they saw a UFO and it landed and blonde humanoid aliens got out and said they were from the planet Venus, which in reality is a hell world and not likely to host humanoid life, and that they killed JFK, well, that's almost certainly a hoax. There's so much wrong with that story that it's not believable. And so I'm inclined to dismiss really
0: wild 1890s airship reports as hoaxes. If a hoax is being perpetrated, then someone has to be responsible for it. Who would have been responsible for these hoaxes? Three possible candidates are ordinary citizens,
1: railroad workers, and newspapermen. Uh, no doubt, at least once the airship reports started getting into the newspapers, some ordinary citizens decided it would be fun to make up their own airship story and tell it to the newspapers. When it comes to the origin of the phenomenon, though, it's been suggested that it was railroad workers who did it. This suggestion is based on the fact that a lot of the airship sightings were reported by railroad workers like Patrick Burns, who we heard from earlier and who worked on the telegraph system for the Texas and Pacific Railroad. So it's been suggested that they were the origin or principal supporting cause of the hoax.
0: And what do you make of this argument?
1: I can't rule out that there were hoaxes by railroad employees, but I don't think it's a good overall explanation. First, railroad employees were not involved in the first reports that happened in California, in San Francisco and Sacramento during phase one. The phenomenon didn't originate along railroad lines, but by the airships being seen in
0: cities. But phase two happened along the railroad lines. Could they have been responsible for that? Again, there might have been some hoaxes by railroad
1: employees, but it isn't a good overall explanation. In the first place, there's a very good reason why railroad employees might see more airships than other people. I mean, suppose you're a clever inventor who's come up with an airship design and you're testing it, uh, primarily with night flights over the middle of the country. How are you supposed to navigate? GPS doesn't exist, radar doesn't exist radio beacons don't exist, and artificial lighting doesn't exist in the countryside. So between major cities, you're just looking down on big dark stretches of primarily undeveloped countryside. That would make nighttime navigation very difficult. But there is one thing that you could use to navigate. The railroads connecting towns. You can Turn on your spotlight, at least periodically, and follow the rail lines for navigation. I mean That would be an obvious thing to do. And so there is a perfectly sensible reason why railroad employees would see more airships than other people. Furthermore, railroad employees would be in a good position to report them because the railroads were also telegraph lines. The railroad companies used telegraph lines along the tracks to communicate and manage the flow of passengers and freight. And when they weren't doing that, they rented out time on the telegraph lines to allow messages to be sent between different towns, such as newspaper stories. That's the origin of the phrase wire service. Newspaper organizations use telegraph wires to distribute their stories. So the railroads thus served as a kind of generation zero internet. So suppose that you're a railroad worker and you see an exciting airship while you're working the route between towns. Then when you pull into the next station, there's a telegrapher right there and you tell him or a local reporter about what you saw. There are thus excellent reasons both for why railroad employees would see airships more frequently and why they would report them so often. Furthermore, it's been pointed out that there's another reason that the railroad hypothesis isn't a good general explanation, which is the fact that there were multiple different companies that owned the railroad lines. In his book, Solving the 1897 Airship Mystery,
0: author Michael Busby writes, The numerous companies owning the railroad lines stretched across the nation precludes the possibility that far-spread telegraphers Working for different employers could coordinate and weave such a convincing hoax and maintain it for a seven-month period. The railroad telegraphers were only reporting what they were asked to report, namely the airship stories as told by eyewitnesses and reporters. So the railroad hoax hypothesis isn't a good general explanation. What about the newspaper hoax hypothesis? 19th century newspapers sometimes printed fake stories to generate sales, Why couldn't we explain the airship sightings as just fake news? Again, this may be the correct explanation
1: for some airship accounts, but it's not a good general explanation, and there are several reasons for that. First, let's talk about newspaper hoaxes in general.
0: Michael Busby writes, In the late 19th century, newspapers, typically large metropolitan papers, knowingly printed fake stories whose subjects were typically of some supposed scientific achievement or discovery. These hoax stories, generally quite detailed and seemingly factual, would require several weeks for their entire plot to be presented. These type of stories became known as serials. The reading public was never sure of the serials veracity until the end of the last installment, when the author would expose the plot for the fiction it was. Such was entertainment before the age of the television. Was the great outpouring of airship stories in 1897 a series of newspaper hoaxes? When a newspaper ran a serial, it typically identified it as such at the end of the last installment. No newspaper ever identified any airship story as a serial, and many was the number of newspapers that ran airship stories across the West, Midwest, and Southwest. Most of these papers were small, locally owned, and published papers doesn't seem probable that all of them would join together in one great hoax on the American public.
1: Further, in his book The Great Airship of 1897, Alan Daniluk writes,
0: It's a well-documented fact that even the largest and most respected newspapers of the era sometimes intentionally included humorous and entirely fictitious stories, from time to time, as a means of bringing some much-needed comic relief to the day's often gloomy economic and political news. While practical jokes were common, they were almost always clearly identified as such to the savvy reader, either by their light-hearted manner, their bizarre and obviously fanciful content such as a jackalope invasion or accounts of fur-covered fish being pulled from a nearby lake, the time of year they ran, April 1st, or that the reporter was writing from an insane asylum, instantly giving the article's true comedic intent away and making it obvious it was intended merely to amuse the reading public. The airship stories, in contrast, were seldom told in a light-hearted manner, but were normally presented quite matter-of-factly, often on the front page, where frivolous news stories never found space. Accounts of airships would also run for several days in a row, completely in contrast to light-hearted pieces, which were usually a once-only affair. In other words, the airship stories were treated as real news and not as mere filler making the prospect that there were all a series of jokes that just got out of hand unlikely.
1: Now, Busby and Danilek are airship researchers rather than journalism experts, so I decided to contact an actual journalism expert to see if their analysis on these points was correct. I contacted Professor Jim Mueller of the Mayburn School of Journalism at the University of North Texas, and he told
0: me by email In the 19th century, there were fewer generally accepted practices than there are today. Newspapers were very individual and reflected the personalities of their publishers. But most would either identify the story as a hoax, or readers could figure it out from the context. So Busby and Daniluk
1: were correct. Fake stories usually would either be explicitly identified as such, or the reader would be given clues that would allow them to figure it out from the context. Like when here on Mysterious World, we do our April Fool's episodes. At the end of each episode, we always note that we're releasing them in connection with April 1st or April Fool's Day. But this is not how the airship stories were treated. They were not identified as fake, and they were presented as straight news stories, such as on the front page where the context indicates straight news unless it's identified as something else. There are also other reasons why the newspaper hoax theory
0: isn't a good general explanation. Busby further states, Conspiracies are difficult to maintain when the number of conspirators is small and impossible to keep up when the number of participants exceeds more than two. It seems, in the heyday of the telegram, impossible for a great number of newspapers to hoax the public for over seven months. And Danilek states, Spending hard earned credentials on airship stories would have been risky for any owner or editor. Had the airships been exposed as a joke or one great hoax, such revelation would have hurt the paper's credibilities considerably, thereby diminishing its ability to use the power of the press to shape public perceptions and ultimately policy in the future. As such, the premise that the airship flap of 1896 97 was a byproduct of unscrupulous newspaper magnates appears to be most untenable. For a newspaper, especially a major one at that, to acquire reputation for printing nonsensical stories as fact was professional suicide, especially in an age where a large newspaper could make a politician's career with a single endorsement or destroy it with an unfavorable editorial. As such, editors and reporters took their responsibilities very seriously, cognizant of the fact that if they were caught printing erroneous stories as fact, Not only would it hurt their reputations personally, but possibly damage the credibility of their employer. If a major city had more than one paper, this could even badly damage the discredited paper circulation, resulting in financial setbacks or even insolvency. And this brings us to a point that I'd like to make.
1: Researchers have looked into the people named in the airship stories, and they've been able to verify that many were real people. As we've heard, I've done that myself for the accounts we heard earlier, and they included real people who were judges, attorneys, doctors, and rabbis. But if the stories were hoaxes by newspaper men, by printing stories implicating real people, they would be opening themselves up to charges of libel, and newspapers don't like getting sued for libel. Furthermore, Printing hoaxed stories would open the papers up to additional competition from their competitors in cities and towns where there was more than one newspaper, which used to be a thing. If your rival newspaper is printing hoaxed airship stories and you can prove it, then you can score a large coup by pointing this out. All you need to do is talk with the real people named in the story and get them to say that the the story was made up, that they never said those things. Or all you need to do is verify that the people named in the story don't exist in your town. And you can royally embarrass your rival paper by loudly trumpeting this fact in print. You can harm your rival and increase your own business by doing so. So that would be a double win. Yet, as far as I've discovered, that didn't happen with the airship stories. Some rival papers did mock the airship stories, but they mocked them on the basis of the witnesses arguing that the witnesses were drunk, crazy, slow-minded, or otherwise of unsound judgment. They did not mock the rival newspaper for knowingly printing false stories, at least not that I've seen. So it appears to me that the newspaper hoax is not a good general explanation. Some newspapers may have knowingly printed hoaxes, particularly in small areas that only had one local newspaper without much competition, but this won't do as a general explanation of the reports. The regular use of real, named, identifiable individuals guarantees
0: that. What about the possibility that there was a physical basis to the hoax? Couldn't pranksters have sent up small balloons or Chinese lanterns that witnesses might have misidentified as airships? Alan Danilich discusses this possibility in his book, writing, There does appear to be some evidence, mostly anecdotal in nature, That during the height of the airship controversy, some enterprising individuals, including, by some accounts, members of the press itself, took it upon themselves to test the public's gullibility by launching a handful of small hot air balloons over various cities to see if they would be reported as airships. Not surprisingly, many times they were, leading some skeptics to submit that proved the reports to be nothing more than hysterical or, at best, badly exaggerated accounts of simple but clever hoaxes. This explanation does carry some weight. Obviously, with interest in the airships already high, any unusual light in the night sky was likely to be perceived as the mysterious vessel in question, especially if it was being pushed along by a fairly good breeze.
1: However, if these pranks were real, they happened at the height of the airship controversy, that is, after the sightings were already well underway when the public was already primed to interpret things they saw in the sky as one of the famous airships. This would not explain the origin of the reports either in phase one in California or when phase two began in an unsuspecting Midwest, when people did not have airships on the brain and when they were not primed to interpret things in the sky as airships. So it also is an inadequate general explanation.
0: If there are some hoaxed stories, is there any way we can
1: identify these? Yes, I think there are several ways. Uh, First, if an airship story involves elements that are really bizarre and unbelievable, then it's less likely to be authentic. Second, if an airship story deviates from the norm, if it's an outlier that doesn't fit the normal pattern, then it's less likely to be authentic. And third, if we look into it and we can't verify the existence of named individuals, then it's also less likely to be authentic. Those are at least some of the tests that we could use to identify stories that are hoaxes.
0: If none of the theories that we've considered thus far are good general explanations for the reports, then that would indicate some people really were seeing airships. So let's look at theories about what these airships would have been. Could they have been craft of extraterrestrial or interdimensional origin? This
1: idea has become popular in the modern UFO community. In support of this idea, one might point to a number of things. Uh, First, some of the eyewitnesses described the airships as cigar-shaped, and some of the UFOs that began to be sighted in the 20th century are also reported to be cigar-shaped. Second, the airships were sometimes described as having amazing flight characteristics that exceeded what other lighter-than-aircraft could do in the 19th century, and one of the distinguishing features of UFOs today is the unusual, unduplicatable flight characteristics they display. Third, when some people reported encountering the crews of the airships, they sometimes said that they had unusual accents or exhibited unusual behaviors, which could suggest that they weren't from these parts. Fourth, Some newspapers suggested that they might be coming from Mars or another planet in the solar system. And fifth, there is one report of a crashed airship whose pilot's burned remains were found, and the pilot was described to be not an inhabitant of this world.
0: What do you think about these arguments?
1: None of them make the extraterrestrial hypothesis a good general explanation. Uh, First, when it comes to the craft being cigar-shaped, well, so were the dirigibles of the day, and so were later ones, like the Hindenburg or the Goodyear blimp. The cigar shape is a good one if you want to pierce the air in front of the craft and have it fly in a particular direction. That's also why airplanes are cigar-shaped. So the shape is equally consistent with them being terrestrial craft. Second, when it comes to them having unusual flight characteristics, they may have been surprising for the day, but they are hardly what we would expect from an extraterrestrial craft. I mean, we're only talking about speeds between 100 and 200 miles per hour, and a sports car can get into that range. Uh, In the first place, these accounts may be wrong, and the speeds may be exaggerated. But in the second place, that speed is nothing compared to a modern airplane, much less a UFO.
0: Alan Danilek comments, While the airships may have displayed a technological sophistication unusual for the late 19th century, they did not display a level of technology that would impress us here in the 21st century. In other words, they didn't seem to have been futuristic or UFO-like enough to have been extraterrestrial, at least according to current expectations. Whereas modern UFOs display all types of fantastic capabilities, from acceleration rates of 40 Gs to making 90-degree turns impossible to duplicate with modern aircraft, the 1896 airships displayed none of these characteristics. Instead, they were almost consistently slow and ponderous things, with speeds that ranged from 10 to 30 miles an hour. While there are a few reports of them accelerating to 100 miles an hour, these were most likely wild guesses especially likely considering how difficult it is to estimate an aircraft's speed from the ground, especially when observers of that era lacked any context within which to even hazard a guess, considering that this was a time when the fastest a human could travel, by locomotive, was around 60 miles per hour. Even a fairly leisurely pace was likely to be blown wildly out of proportion to someone from that era. The craft were also rarely reported as making sudden turns or performing any of the types of maneuvers normally associated with UFOs, which would seem to be unusual for a craft presumably advanced enough to traverse the vast expanses of interstellar space required to reach our solar system. In fact, if anything, they appeared barely under control. Again, very un-UFO-like. In other words, if the airships of 1896-97 were extraterrestrial visitors, they displayed a stunningly unimpressive show of technology. Third,
1: the unusual accents and behaviors that members of the airship crews were sometimes reported to have could be explained by the fact that they really were aliens, meaning aliens to the United States, people from other countries here on Earth, or foreigners. In the 19th century, America was not yet the global scientific powerhouse that it would come to be after World War II. Lots of scientists and inventors were from Europe, and there was lots of immigration from Europe in the 19th century. So whoever invented the airships could have been a European or some other kind of foreigner with a strange accent and strange behavior, even if those reports are accurate. Fourth, there were only a few newspapers that speculated that the airships might be from Mars or another planet in the solar system. Most newspapers, like most people, interpreted the airships as purely human inventions that were manned by humans. And speculations to the contrary were just that, speculations. And speculations are not evidence. Further, we now know that Mars and the other planets of the solar system do not harbor
0: human-like life. If they were extraterrestrial, they could have been from further away than the solar system. What about the fifth argument? That after an airship crash, the pilot's burned remains revealed that he was not an inhabitant of this world. That case was based in the small Texas town of Aurora,
1: north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And we'll be talking about it specifically in a future episode. But if that statement about the pilot is true, then this case is an outlier. In case after case, the crews of the airships were reported to be humans. Uh, that was the overwhelming consensus of the people who claimed to interact with them, like telegraph repairman Patrick Burns, Rabbi Levy, and Constable John J. Sumter, and Deputy Sheriff John McLemore. They all indicated that they were talking with normal human beings. Now, I can't eliminate the possibility that there were extraterrestrial craft visiting Earth in the 1890s, and maybe the 1897 Aurora crash was an early predecessor of the 1947 Roswell crash 50 years later. And you can go back and listen to episode 49 to get my current view of what likely happened at Roswell. But Aurora is an outlier that will not serve as a general explanation of the airship reports. The overwhelming consensus is that the crews were human.
0: Could they have been crypto terrestrials, humans from a hidden civilization here on Earth?
1: We'll have a future episode discussing crypto terrestrials, and there is one account that would suggest that that's what the airship crews were. It was printed in the April 19th, 1897 edition of the Dallas Morning News, and
0: it stated A judge sees it. The curious effect of Chambers Creek water, Waxahatchee, Ellis County, Texas. April 18th, the news reporter has had an interview with Judge Love of this city concerning the mysterious airship which has been puzzling the minds of many Texans. A rumor having gained currency that it had been seen by him, the news reporter called at his office in quest of further information. Judge Love said, Mr. Beatty and myself were on a fishing tour of Chambers Creek near the mouth of Great House Ranch yesterday, April 17th. The wind was in the north, and we were having very little success about five thirty or six o'clock in the afternoon. We decided to go further down the creek about six hundred yards from the mouth of Great House Ranch. Mr. Beatty was slightly in advance, and I heard him say, "My God, what is that?" When I struggled through the underneath to him, he pointed to the left, and there, in a ravine, was a group of five peculiarly dressed men, and resting on the bank by them, was a queer-looking machine from which the sketches and descriptions heretofore published in the news, we decided must be the airship. The men were taking their ease, stretched out full length on some furs, and they were smoking pipes. We with some trepidation advanced upon them. When they saw us, they appeared somewhat disconcerted, but one of them in fairly good English called to us, come and join us. We advanced, and after mutual introductions had taken place, I asked if that was the famous airship. The man who had first called to us and who appeared to be the leader of the party said, that is one of the airships. Would you like to examine it? The vessel or airship is 32 feet long and in the center is 14 feet wide, sloping gradually toward each other like a Mexican cigar. It has three pairs of wings. Each is like the wings of a bird. They are ribbed fore and aft and are covered so that the stream of air can have its full lifting capacity somewhat after the manner of the wings of the kite sent up by Lampson in Rigsby Park. The airship contained machinery by which the wings can be worked or flapped very rapidly, and by means of a lever the ship can be turned to any direction or made to ascend or descend at will of the helmsman. The ship is fitted for the accommodation of its crew containing bunks, cooking department, gasoline stove, and other conveniences. We were told by the aerial navigators that this airship was capable of a speed of 250 miles an hour, but that its normal rate of speed was from 125 to 150 miles an hour. On evincing a desire to hear whence they came and how long they had been navigating the air, their leader produced pipes and a sack of excellent tobacco and asked us to make ourselves comfortable while he proceeded to enlighten us. We, he said, live in the regions of the North Pole. Contrary to the general belief, there is a large body of land beyond the polar area containing about 250 square miles of territory. The first time this land was visited by human beings, so far as we know, was when the ten tribes of Israel found their way there after the captivity and dispersion of the Jews. According to tradition, they were attempting to cross the Bering Straits and were carried by a floating iceberg and landed on the shores of North Pole land. The climate there, while at the time cold, was prevented from being uninhabitable by the influence of the Gulf Stream, which, after flowing for hundreds of miles many fathoms under the surface of the sea in that region, came to the surface and flows entirely around the continent of North Pole. You wonder how I speak English? Well, the polar expedition of Sir Hugh Willoughby in 1553, who, with his crew, was supposed to have been lost, as a matter of fact, succeeded in reaching North Pole land. The ship had been so wrecked and broken up by the voyage that Sir Willoughby and his crew were unwilling to risk a return trip, therefore, they remained at North Pole Land. In the early part of 1846, Sir John Franklin's crew reached North Pole Land, Sir John having died near what is now called Lady Franklin Bay. Sir John's crew remained, as to return was impossible, the ship being crushed between two icebergs a hundred miles from North Pole Land, to which they went in boats in addition to the foregoing, various parties in the United States and Europe have from time to time reached this land in a hopeless condition. How do you manage to live? Well, we have a splendid country now. You know how buildings are heated by steam. Well, we have pipes through which steam is conveyed all over the inhabitable part of the country, and the soil is kept at such a temperature that we can produce all the fruits of the temperate zone and some of the fruits of the tropics. The country is lighted by electricity during the 6 months' night. We have no timber and no coals. Water, as you know, is composed of two parts of hydrogen and one part oxygen. The oxygen burns very rapidly, giving off great heat. Now, by means of a chemical process, we take an iceberg, separate the hydrogen from the oxygen, and use the latter for fuel and lights. For lack of timber, we cannot build ships or trains. Therefore, we were led to the invention of the airship. We have been using the airships in the North Pole land for many years for local travel, but not until recently have we made the experiment of taking such trips as the one we are on now. On the first day of January, the Historical Society of North Pole Land decided to send out a number of airships throughout the United States and Europe. Twenty airships were ordered built expressly for the purpose with a capacity of five men each. On the first day of march eighteen ninety seven, ten of these ships were started to Europe and ten to America. There are ten ships in the United States. We have guns and fishing tackle, and the speed which we go enables us to take any game we can sight. By agreement, the ten ships in the United States will meet in Nashville, Tennessee to attend the Centennial Exposition on June 18 and 19, and the ships will be on exhibition for those two days free of charge. About a hundred miles north of here, we had to descend and saw one of your trains go by. They are very curious things, but go so slow. Now, we must be going. Judge Love continued, We then shook hands with the crew, and they stepped into their ship, rose in the air, and started toward Waco. The description of the ship I have given you is a very meager one, but you can all go to the Nashville Exposition, June 18 and 19, and see for yourselves.
1: Now, I think that this is an awesome story. It's really entertaining, but I'm afraid that's all it is, a story. There are multiple problems with it. To go back to the three criteria we named earlier for spotting hoaxes, well, first, this story contains bizarre things that are hard to believe. Uh, There is the crypto-terrestrial civilization itself, though we will be discussing that possibility in a future episode. However, we've now mapped the entire globe, and there is no continent at the North Pole to be warmed by the Gulf Stream. And we don't have any evidence of the existence of a North Pole land like the one described in this story. Then there's the fact that these guys from North Pole land are pipe smokers who have excellent tobacco, which is unlikely to be the case as tobacco pipe smoking is a custom that originated in the Americas. It only gradually spread to Europe and the polar explorers who arrived in North Pole land are unlikely to have brought cultivatable tobacco plants or seeds with them. Uh, Second, this, although upon thinking about it, as we're recording, well, I guess they could have bought their pipes and tobacco when they visited America and they were new to to the hobby. Second, though, this story is an outlier. It doesn't fit the pattern of other airship stories reported by eyewitnesses, and that makes it less likely to be true. So, All that makes the crypto-terrestrial story reported in this account seem very unlikely. But I have seen one attempt to rescue the basic account itself. Michael Busby regards the basic story as true, that Judge Love really did encounter an airship and speak with the crew. But he thinks that the whole North Pole land story was a lie, that the crew told Judge Love to throw people off so they wouldn't realize the true origins of the airship and possibly learn how to copy it. Does he have any evidence to support this view? He does. Uh, He bases it on the fact that the leader of the airship said that he would be displaying an airship at the Tennessee Centennial Convention. Tennessee was admitted to the Union in June of 1796, and they were closing out the 100th year of statehood in June of 1897, with a Centennial Exposition in Nashville. Busby notes that an inventor did contact the Centennial Exposition and say he would like to display and fly an airship there, which we'll discuss later. But the claim of this gentleman wasn't unique.
0: That still seems fairly weak evidence. The Tennessee Centennial was a popularly known event at the time, and it could have just been coincidence. Do you see any reasons to doubt the idea that what Judge Love said he was told was true, even if the airship captain lied to him? Initially, yes. And it goes back to the third criterion we mentioned
1: for spotting hoaxes, the inability to verify the existence of an individual named in the story. Now, for an ordinary citizen, that could involve a lot of research, such as looking up census records, and even then you might not find him. But Judge Love would be a judge, a public figure. He would have ruled on court cases that would be discussed in newspapers. So he should leave a larger footprint and should be mentioned in newspapers of the period. Now, this article tells us where Judge Love lived. It said he was of this city. And the dateline of the story is in Waxahachie, Texas. The article does not tell us Judge Love's first name or initial, and that's rather suspicious, since unless he was very famous, the readers of the Dallas Morning News in Dallas might not know who he was if you just said Judge Love. But other people mentioned in the airship stories in the Dallas Morning News, you know, typically get either first names or initials, but Judge Love didn't which might be a clue that he's an invented figure or, or that he was a famous judge at the time. Well, he certainly wasn't famous. Uh, I searched the archives of the Dallas Morning News for the phrase Judge Love and wasn't able to find any references to him. So I broadened the search and checked newspapers.com for the 1890s for references to Judge Love and Waxahachie. I also found no references. And I broadened the search still further and used Google to search for Judge Love and Waxahachie and initially found nothing. But then I did. After a lot of searching, I eventually discovered who Judge Love was. His name was Albert L. Love, and I even found a picture of him. I also discovered why he wasn't famous as a judge at this time. I discovered that he had only been appointed a judge less than a month before. He had been an attorney in Waxahachie, and he had been appointed as a judge to fill a special term uh, in the district court on March 17, 1897. So he had only been a judge for a month at the time the story came out in the Dallas Morning News on April 19. That's one reason it was hard to initially find records of him online. He had only just been appointed as a judge for a brand new special term. This discovery forced me to reevaluate my attitude towards the story. Having an actual verifiable judge telling it is a big deal, especially for brand new judges whose reputation is very much on the line. Judges are prestigious figures. Who, for whom public reputation for honesty and truthfulness is a really big deal. So, based on the evidence, I had to change my view on this account. I now suspect that Busby is right and the encounter may have happened. Judge Love really did encounter an airship and speak with the leader of the pipe smoking crew. But I don't believe the North Pole land story for a minute. So I also have to agree with Busby that there that this would have been a lie on the part of the
0: leader of the airship that he told to
1: Judge Love.
0: It thus sounds like we have good evidence that the people behind the airships were ordinary human beings. What can we say about them? Well, that's a bigger question
1: than we can deal with today. So this will be our cliffhanger for the next episode. Next time, we'll look more closely at particular airship reports that may give us clues about the identity of the mystery airship builders, who they were, why the airship reports ended so suddenly, and whether they may have been connected to a secret government program.
0: So, Jimmy, for now, do you have a preliminary bottom line for us? The mystery airships of 1896 and 1897
1: are a fascinating phenomenon. The stories themselves are interesting, and when we look at what could explain the stories, we likely are looking at multiple causes. However, it's fairly easy to show that while many of the proposed explanations may have been true in some cases, they are not good general explanations for the overall phenomenon. We can't simply explain it away by saying that people were misidentifying things like meteors, fireballs, comets, and the planet Venus. We can't explain it away as just based on hoaxes by ordinary people, railroad workers, newspaper men, or pranksters. The evidence suggests that people really were seeing something like airships in the sky. But despite the claims in the UFO community, we do not have good evidence that they were extraterrestrial or interdimensional in nature. Neither do we have good evidence that they were from a crypto-terrestrial civilization. The evidence supports them being terrestrial craft built by human beings. So the question is, who built them?
0: Jimmy, what further resources can we offer?
1: We'll have links to Michael Busby's book, Solving the 1897 Airship Mystery, and J. Allen Danilek's book, The Great Airship of 1897. Also, Carlos Allende's book, Close Encounters of the Phantom Kind, The Ghost Airship Wave, of 1896-97 to in the news. Also, a link to a video lecture on the UFO sightings of 1897 in Arkansas, Jules Verne information about Jules Verne's novel Rober the Conqueror, uh, information about Judge Albert L. Love, and the appointment of Judge Love.
0: All right, that's it from us for this time then. What are your theories about the 1890s mystery airships? you can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our Mysterious Feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a
1: special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. They're available for hire for your video and animation needs, so check out their work. You can do that by going to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where we have the video version of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, and you can see how much the video element adds to it. Um, also, while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel, and we're trying to get up at the time of recording to 50,000 subscribers. So I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe and also hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's for Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I do. Also, uh, be sure to like and comment on the videos because that tells the YouTube algorithm that you liked it and interacted with it and therefore it would be interesting to other people too and it'll show it to them so you can help the show grow and reach more people by liking, commenting, and subscribing. I also want to say a special thanks to Professor Jim Mueller of the Mayborn School of Journalism at the University of North Texas for uh, helping clarify a point about how newspapers ran uh, stories of less than full accuracy at the time and how they signaled their readers when this was the case.
0: Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, next episode
1: is part two. So we'll be looking at the airship phenomenon more closely and seeing if we can identify who was responsible for the mystery airships, why the sightings ended so subtle suddenly, and whether they may have been connected to a secret government program.
0: Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you can write reviews of podcasts to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 279. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by... Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. And by Rosary Army, featuring award winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, And the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash star wars.